Hey, this is Elia Einhorn. Welcome to the TalkHouse podcast. Today I'm sitting here with Nick Dawson, Editor-in-Chief of TalkHouse Film. On today's episode, we have Jim Hempill in conversation with Leah Thompson. Absolutely. Jim and Leah have been friends for a number of years. They worked together on the 2011 movie, The Trouble with the Truth, which Jim wrote and directed and Leah starred in. And they were talking because Leah's feature directorial debut, The Year of Spectacular Man, is playing at the LA Film Festival on Friday, June 16th. Get tickets if you still can. Probably sold out, but try. Absolutely. Get in line, see if you can get in. So the movie is written by Leah's daughter, Maddie Deutsch, who stars in it with her sister, Zoe Deutsch, and also Leah. And the movie was produced by Leah's husband, Howard Deutsch. It's very much a family affair, which is very appropriate because it's actually about a family and contains some inter-family affairs. So it's sort of a Nora Ephron, Woody Allen, 80s type romantic comedy. Now, going back to the 80s, Leah tells some pretty amazing stories. Of course, this is the woman who starred in Back to the Future. Right, as, as they say, a wholesome family comedy about incest. She also starred in one of my childhood favorite movies, which in retrospect is a little bit disturbing, Howard the Duck. And yeah, there's some uh, really great stories about Howard the Duck, also about All the Right Moves and, and Tom Cruise. There's some meaty Tom Cruise stuff in this episode. Let's just say the conversation went from being very wholesome in itself to a sort of NSFW moment very quickly. Right. From what you told me, you kind of did a bit of a double take as, as that shift took place. I did. I did. So, you know, to our listeners, if you're playing this in the office, you know, just get ready for an awkward moment. Play this in your office, but know that you will be pushing the limits of what is appropriate public discourse. Now, getting back to Howard the Duck, there's a really interesting story here about how its failure at the box office led to some fantastic changes in Leah's life. Right. The failure both critically and commercially of that movie led to Leah's career taking a bit of a hit. And she took a movie, some kind of wonderful, which she'd previously turned down. The director of that movie, Howard Deutsch, shortly after became her husband. And they touch on a lot of other stuff, including how great a corpse Jim is as an actor. The reason Jim was digitally removed from an episode of The Fosters. Sexism in Hollywood. And making movies with your heroes. And of course, Leah was a hero to Jim when they made The Trouble with the Truth together. On that note, this conversation starts with them talking about how they met. On that movie. Let's roll it. I remember... The first conversation we had about you doing the movie, I was at the Telluride Film Festival. I think you were on like vacationing on Fire Island or something. And you, I, you know, I got this phone call from Tommy, the producer of the movie. And we, you know, we were a few weeks away from shooting and we were trying to cast this thing because in typical independent film fashion, uh, you know, I'd gotten myself in this situation where the movie had to start by a certain date. And of course, we kind of had the date before we had a cast or a crew or anything like that. And so anyway, Tommy calls me and he says, okay, uh, you know, Leah Tom- I think Leah Thompson's in, but she wants to talk to you and make sure you're not crazy. So, uh, so I remember having this conversation with you on the phone while I was like standing in the middle of a road in Telluride at the film festival, uh, you know, trying to convince you to do the movie. And I remember saying to you, look, you know, I, I can't really pay you anything, but it'll only be a couple of weeks out of your life. And and then two or three years later, I still was calling you to come to film, fe- you know, come to the Twin Cities Film Festival in Minnesota to promote this movie. And, uh, you know, and so it was, it was I didn't mean to lie to you at the time, but it, but it was a lie that you would only be working with me for two weeks. I think we ended up, I think there was a total of about five years where every few weeks I would be calling you to do, a, go to a film festival or do an interview or, uh, you know, something like that. But uh 
Well, if I may say, it was a great pleasure. Oh, it was one you. of the great pleasures of my career to do your film. You well, were amazing. Well, thanks. It was, uh, you know, it was obviously a great, a great pleasure for me too, and and very and an interesting experience because it was the first time I ever made a movie with a real crew with you know professional actors. I mean, the first movie I made was this low budget horror film that we made for ten thousand bucks. Um, and you know, I, there, the crew was three people, me, the cinematographer and the guy holding the boom mic. None of us had ever done the jobs we were doing. I mean, the guy, the cinematographer wasn't a cinematographer. The guy holding boom mic was my college roommate just happened to, you know, and also one of the shortest guys I knew, which didn't really make sense that he was our boom mic guy. Uh, but anyway, we were the crew of three, you know, all the actors, we had some very good actors, but they were all basically, it was their first movie. It was a you know set in high school. So it was all a bunch of 18 year old actors who didn't know what they were doing. I didn't know what I was doing. And, you know, I, I, with uh, Trouble with the Truth, I was definitely a little bit intimidated coming in to be working with you and John Shea. I mean, I've, I've told this story before that when I was at USC Film School, Robert Zemeckis came to talk to my class, and he said that you were his favorite actor he had ever worked with. And that, wow. that always really stuck with me wow. because I thought this guy who's worked with, you wow. know, Tom Hanks and Meryl <laughs> Streep and Michelle Pfeiffer and, you know, a lot of... Uh, you know, Denzel Washington, whatever. I mean, he's worked with all the big stars and lots of great actors. And so that always really stuck stuck with me. And I always had this kind of fantasy that I would, uh, you know, make a movie with you someday. And then when I got to do it, um, you know, I was a little, the thing that made me a little bit nervous was actually knowing that both you and John Shea, the male lead, had also had directed, you know. I, I mean, at that time you had, again, directed a bunch of TV movies and stuff. John had directed... Uh, tons of theater and then an independent feature. And I think I was very, uh, you know, wary of, I was wondering, you know, okay, are they going to, you know, try to sort of, are they going to not trust, you know, are they going to see that I don't know what I'm doing basically <laughs> and try, you know, and, and actually it was a great experience because you guys, I think, I think it was the opposite. I think it was like what you were saying, you know, you both sort of knew what I was up against. So you were only helpful. It was kind of, it was sort of like having an extra, couple sets of eyes that would, you know, if I, if there was something I didn't get that I should, you know, John would kind of be like, yeah, you know, you might want to get this thing and get, you're going to want this in the editing room or whatever. But it was never, it was never pushy. It was always really, um, you know, it was, it was really helpful and great. Um, but I guess, you know, I'm curious, the, the thing that I always think about on that movie is, I was by far the least experienced person on the set, you know, I mean, I was the director and I'd spent far fewer hours on any set than anyone else there. And that's generally the case. I mean, even if you're, mm -hmm. even if yeah. you're, uh, you know, even if you're Ridley Scott, you're probably, you've, you've logged less hours on set than anybody else on your set, just because if you're a director, you're lucky if you get to make maybe a movie a year. And that's very few people even get to do that. Most of them, it's one every several years. Whereas your actors, your crew, they're doing, you know, tons of stuff. And I guess, my question for you is, having had this career, being on so many different sets, I mean, you've gotten to see so many different kinds of directors. You know, there's Zemeckis, there's Eastwood, there's your husband, Howie Deutsch, there's, you know, somebody like Michael Chapman, who directed All the Right Moves and wasn't really a director. He's a cinematographer who wasn't probably, based on what I've heard, the greatest with actors. Um, and I'm curious, you know, what, this is a huge question, but how does all of that inform the way you direct? I mean, you know, what do you do as a director, I guess, to kind of facilitate the best performances from people? Well, it is a really unique position. You know, you're talking about, I mean, the amount of directors I've worked with is probably, you know, I've worked with great TV directors too. I mean, I, I 
I did a million episodes with James Burroughs, who's the yeah. you know most famous sitcom director. And I've worked with a lot of great directors, um, a lot of women directors. Um, so it does give me a unique um, a unique perspective on directing and more so from, I learned more from the bad ones, mm-hmm. how they, how it's, how easy it is to alienate actors right. because they're so sensitive and you know, how important it is to just make sure you you know, that the crew knows that you're there for them, that you're, especially the actors, that you're, 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 you've got their backs, mm-hmm. you know, and also to give them permission. It's like, it's like shocking how many directors don't give you permission to just, do your thing. Mm-hmm. Instead, they kind of make you like self-conscious, which yeah. is a complete disaster. Like, why would anybody do that to somebody? Um, you know, oftentimes you'll find yourself, you know, in my TV movie phase, you know, you, you know, you've been raped and, you know, your child's being taken from you or whatever. And, and they're just like, okay, action. <laughs> and you're like, you're scared to like go for it. Like what, in any way, shape, or form, like a person would really go for it. Um, so it's about giving permission. It's about um, you know all the obvious stuff about where you put the camera and all that stuff. I've, I learned a lot about production because not only have I been in a million things, I've been the star of a million things. And when you're the star, you're there all day. Yeah. And you, every single person who doesn't do their job well affects you in a way that you can see. Mm-hmm. When you come in and you kind of do a scene, you go back to your trailer, you don't really get the whole feeling of what's going on on the set and what's going wrong. And you know everything that goes wrong makes it worse for you. Mm-hmm. A scene that makes no sense, uh, bad props, uh, bad lighting, everything makes it harder and worse for you. So you learn about production. And I learned a lot about production. I learned about, on my TV movies, I learned a lot about getting the biggest bang for your buck. And I think sometimes um, independent filmmakers, because they're inexperienced, they don't really understand how to get the biggest bang for their buck in terms of how and where you shoot things. And so um, I'm really into that. And, you know, that was a big part of my movie, um, The Earth Spectacular Man, was really trying to make it look as big as possible with as little money as possible. And... um, you know, I think it, uh, that's that sounds not like woo-woo, you know, mm-hmm. like how I work with the actors. But ha- I'm lucky because they naturally know I'm one of them. Right. So I don't have to work really hard at that because yeah. I'm one of them. I'm, I get it. I right. understand. Um, I'm not really intimidated by actors, which is a terrible thing. That's so many and so many feature directors. Hopefully that breed is dying off now. Mm-hmm. But so many feature directors are just like, either obviously dislike actors or just don't even, I can't stand them. Like they don't want anything to do with them. And it's insane to me. Like that's all that really matters. Mm -hmm. Things throwing, blowing up and all that, you know, nobody cares. It's that moment when they go into the close up and that guy goes, you know, says the great line. Everybody remembers that. And I am kind of constantly amazed when I hear about directors who, don't like actors or don't want to talk to them or, or things like that. I mean, I was recently... Um, it's really common. Yeah, I was shadowing on a TV series. I was the shadowing director on this TV series recently because I'm trying to break into directing episodic TV, and I was talking with some of the actors on that. And 
you know, they were telling me horror story after horror story. You know, I was asking them, what do you look for? And they, all of them just said the same thing, which was they just said somebody who talks to us. Yeah. And I said, don't they all talk to you? And they said, no. And then, and somebody else on the show asked me, what kind of director are you? And I said, well, what do you mean? And they said, well, you know, are you uh, an actor's director? Or are you a visual director? And I said, you know, aren't it's you horrible. supposed to be both? Yeah, and, uh, that's just horrible. Uh, and but I think you're right. I mean, that was actually very much with the movie we made together. That was the pragmatic uh, idea I had right from the beginning. I wrote it specifically with the idea of if everything else goes wrong, as long as I have two good actors, this movie will work. Basically, mm-hmm. you know, it was sort of des- designed. Well, it was a great script. Well, thanks. It was kind of designed to be that. It was sort of designed so that, like, well, if I don't have the money to make it look the way I want, or I, you know, I'm. Shooting, you know, I mean, we were shooting that movie in a studio that looked like something out of Cormac McCarthy's *The Road*. I mean, I, like, I don't know what that, you know, that neighborhood we were. It was just like the, <laughs> the the ghetto of the desolate dregs of Los Angeles, downtown Los Angeles. But, um, but I knew if I had actors like you and John, you know, it would kind of. That's all any like you say anybody would uh, would care about. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing about movie making, and that's what's so great about it diversifying because. Um, you know, in a world where it's just the same, you know, a 40 to 50-year-old white guy directing movies, you're going to get one kind of, and writing them and producing them, you're going to get one kind of story and it gets boring after mm-hmm. a while. You need more people, uh, you know, uh, you, you did a great job. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but you, need, you do need more people. No, with, absolutely. Uh, you know, you're younger too. You're a younger generation. Like, I don't really experience a lot of sexism now as a director except for from the dps because they just seem to be the worst you know um, you know like most stuck so unfortunately when i go to get a dp i i usually like a younger guy because they're not so sexist like they're different you know guy in their 30s and 40s early 40s they're like they see the world differently for the most part than these 50 60 70 year old DPs, they're just really sexist, and it's very annoying. Yeah, well, that that actually leads me to another question. You know, you mentioned that with actors, you kind of come in and they know you speak their language, so you don't maybe you don't maybe have the hurdles that some directors have to get over in terms of them trusting you. But does it work the opposite way with crew, with DPs, and with people on the crew? Is there a sort of do you ever find that there's a sort of suspicion of you because it's like, oh, here comes some actor, you know, coming in to direct? I haven't felt that way because usually, well, I also have this advantage that I've usually worked with two or three people on the set. Right. And I have built good karma through years and years of being a decent fellow worker among workers. Um, so I, you know, I always have somebody that goes, she's cool, don't worry, she's going to be fine. So, you know, that usually helps. And... You know, yeah, I don't really feel like I get that too much, but I do get, you know, a little bit of starstruck sometimes. You know, mm-hmm. the fans of Back to the Future, whatever, they're like, oh right. my God, that just lasts for like four and a half minutes and then it's over. Yeah. I mean, well, it's sort of an interesting thing. You know, uh, Scorsese talks about this rule that if, it, if, if there's somebody who you work with who you saw in a movie before you turned 21, mm-hmm. there's something different. You know, you do have to get over that starstruck thing. Like he had it when he worked with Paul Newman on Color of Money. And, you know, right. you didn't usually have it with other actors, but it was like Paul Newman. It was like, okay, I saw this guy when I was 14 and right. the silver chalice or whatever the hell it was. And, um, yeah, I mean, I had that kind of experience with you a little bit. You know, I mean, look, my this 
the, the first memory I have of seeing you on screen is watching you get fingered in a car by Tom Cruise. <laughs> so that's sort of a strange, uh, uh, you know. That's terrifying. <laughs> I, I saw. Um, I, I saw. Was that what was happening in that scene? I didn't know. I, well, I, I think thought, that's your imagination. Is, am I remembering it wrong? That's yeah, what I thought. Yeah. He, I'm pretty sure that's what he was doing to you. And I don't know. Maybe I remember. I mean, admittedly, I saw it sort of through, you know, through closed fingers because my I saw that movie with my grandmother and she kept putting her hand over my eyes. So, so uh, maybe maybe I filled in. Maybe my imagination made it bigger than it was. But I it have seemed, the distinction of being naked with Tom Cruise. Yeah. Except for we were wearing white socks. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And that's well, and that's Which they sort had of to famous, digitally kind of remove at that time when they couldn't. They removed the socks. No, they had to reframe it, which was a big deal uh-huh. in film at that right. time, I guess. Yeah, to, they had to do it op- with an optical printer or something. Yeah, they, they the, had to. It was expensive to get the white socks out. Interesting, because it made everybody laugh, which was would have been great. Yeah. Well, the, now, well, and so it's interesting because yeah, you had a nude scene in that movie with Tom Cruise. Isn't that the movie where he sort of famously, if you freeze it at just the right moment, you can see Tom Cruise's penis too? Yes, I think. Yeah. it's a, like so. like a big deal, and, and no one talks about me, but they talk about Tom Cruise's <laughs> penis, um, which which is oh brings me to another pro, you know problem because like you know in love scenes, guys are always like, I'm sorry if it happens, and I'm sorry mm-hmm, if it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Like it's either way, so I don't think it happened. <laughs> so. Tom Cruise is probably a little embarrassed about that little peak of his penis. I'm not sure. It was cold in that room. <laughs> I've never looked at it, but mm-hmm. I've heard about it. Mm-hmm. But um, he was a gentleman and an awesome guy. That scene was really interesting to me because he – there were two scenes in that movie where I was supposed to take my shirt off. And I didn't want to do the movie because I didn't want to take my shirt off. And they somehow convinced me to. And I literally had to take my shirt off in the audition, which was really weird and creepy. Mm-hmm. That's, and I yeah. tried to make them really embarrassed about it. But – uh, yeah, the director said he, Michael Chapman says I don't want to be in the room for that, and I was like, get in the room! Like, if I have to take <laughs> off my top, you have to be in here too. He didn't want to be in the room for shooting or for the audition. For the audition, uh-huh. he was like mortified. He was a kind of you know, uh, like East Coast like dude. Yeah, you know, He's the guy who shot Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. Yeah, but what, well, so why? Who was it that wanted you to do that? that I think said the studio to wanted to see if a if I would do it and b if I had nice boobs. Uh-huh. I, I get it. Mm-hmm. You know, if I was in the same position, I'd probably ask for the same thing. But um, I didn't. So I got there, and there were these two scenes. That scene where I'm in the car and getting fingered, apparently. <laughs> um, <laughs> at that scene, I was supposed to take my top off, and then there was the whole love scene. And Tom Cruise was really sweet. He fought really hard for me not to take my top off in that scene. And then he said when we did that other scene that we were, you know, the whole key about these love scenes, you know, at the time there was always, a girl was always taking her top off in every movie at that point. And, um, you know, they don't do it so much anymore. They just do it on HBO. Right. But, um Tom was really smart about it. He was like, you know, we got to make this a scene about something. And it's actually a really somber scene. And he said, if she has to take off her clothes, I'll take off my clothes, which was really sweet. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really, he didn't have to. It wasn't negotiated that way. And um, I also remember Jan, Jan DeBont was on the ground shooting it. Great DP. Yeah. Um, and he was like, no one was in the room. He goes, do you have any body makeup on? And I was like, no. What's body makeup? And he went, okay, action. <laughs> <laughs> but I was 21, so didn't need it at the time. Mm-hmm. What was the reaction to that movie when it came out? I mean, I, you know, because again, it's, it's interesting, these movies that you did pre-Back to the Future, you know, I saw all of them, Jaws 3D, All Right Moves, Red Dawn, Wildlife. I saw them in the theater as a kid when they came out. But, you know, at that point I was 
of an age where I just loved movies, but I had no idea about anything, you know, business-wise. I had no idea which of them were doing well, which of them weren't. You know, and all the right moves, I remember, had a really big effect on me. I mean, I thought you and Cruz were both fantastic. It felt like a sort of more, as you say, it was a more somber, serious teen film, you know, mm-hmm. than than people were used to. I mean, that was, you know, that was the era of Porky's and class and mm-hmm. things like that, you know, which I, I like those movies, but but it just it just all the right movies had an almost more, you know, Martin Ritt kind of feel to it or something. And it, was it well received? And was it a movie that you got any attention for at the time? Or a little bit, I guess, but it what it didn't make that much money. I know it was a disappointment. Um, yeah, I mean, they specifically went for that. Like, we we had to call cover set if the sun was out because they wanted it to look like a depressing, um, you know, steel mill town. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's interesting. It's the same theme. I mean, that was, whatever, 30, 34 years ago. And the still the same theme is going on in America right yeah. now, you know, like the dying of these kind of big industrial jobs. And were they really worth having anyway? Like, mm-hmm. who really wants to go down in a coal mine, mm-hmm. honestly? Wouldn't you rather be putting up solar panels? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, isn't that a better job mm-hmm. than client? You know, than working in these huge factories where you, people are dying in flames? You mm-hmm. know, like, um, but that those those were the questions that they you know were very interesting at that point for the filmmakers, and yeah, it was a disappointment, and it was really interesting because. I didn't really know much about acting. I mean, I really, I, I'm okay in that movie, I think. But um, I think a lot of people thought that I was, they just found me mm-hmm. in, that's who I was. They right. didn't know I was this modern dancer, ballerina, right. you know. Like, they thought I just, they found me in a coal mine and yeah. gave me well, that job. Which actually is a compliment. I was going to say, I mean, I think it's a testament. You, you say that you weren't necessarily that great in it, but I think that's a testament to how good you are in it. I mean, I think you're... You know, I actually, two of my favorite early performances of yours actually are that and another movie that I know you don't necessarily, you are kind of mystified by my fondness for, which is The Wildlife, <laughs> uh, which I don't know if people listening to this are familiar with it because it's kind of fallen into obscurity, but it was, <laughs> you know, but it was an interesting movie. It was written by Cameron Crowe after he wrote Ridgemont High and before he wrote Say Anything. Uh, I can't remember, was it directed by Art Linson? Is that yes, who directed yes, it? Yes. So it was directed by Art Linson, you know, the... the very famous producer who produced a lot of, you know, The Untouchables and um, and, and also I think directed, I should have checked this stuff before I came here, I think he directed Where the Buffalo Roam with yes, Bill Murray, did. which... Yes, uh, you're smart. Uh, it's just, I just, just no spent you're way, such a good director. way too many. Well, well, you know, my approach to directing is truly to sort of getting to your point about making people feel like you've got their back. It's really just that I'm a fan. I mean, I don't, I'm not necessarily, you know, I'm not Ridley Scott. Like, I'm not the world's greatest visual designer. I'm not the world's greatest... I'm certainly not the world's greatest actor myself. In fact, I think part of the reason I'm very respectful of actors and what they do and do try to protect them is the rare occasions I've tried to act have all been disasters for everyone involved, myself. You know, the, the, I actually have the distinction of having been digitally removed from an episode of The Fosters because I was so unconvincing playing a guy walking down the street. Um, <laughs> they literally had to, I was uh, uh, on the set of that show and they threw me into a scene and it was a big crane shot that was the final shot of the season and they had to spend, you know, tens of thousands of dollars removing me from the shot because I looked so awkward walking across. You know, I just, I'm, I'm so ill at ease on camera. That so. is really distinctive. Yeah. I, that, it's, That's impressive. Yeah. I've been, uh, the only thing 
I can do as an actor. I was told once by Greg Kinnear that I have the best dead eye stare in the business. I can play a corpse. Uh, I used to do that on, for him when he, on uh, Talk Soup because that was my f- my first job when I came out here to go to film school was I worked on uh, Talk Soup when Greg Kinnear was the host. And so they would always throw me into skits when they needed a dead body. So that's that's the only thing I can do. It's difficult. Uh, I understand. <laughs> but yeah, I come in as a fan and and I'm a fan, again, I'm a fan of the, wild, of the wildlife, which is this kind of, it's kind of a, the way they marketed it at the time was it was as a sequel to Fast Times Richmond High, which it really wasn't. It was, but it was kind of a, it was kind of a spiritual companion piece, as they say, sort of like Linklater's Everybody Wants Some was a spiritual companion piece to Dazed and Confused. I think, uh, you know, wildlife, it was basically the same kinds of Cameron Crowe characters and relationships, but in, you know, post high school life versus high school. And, um, and anyway, I always thought that your performance in that movie, you really had a kind of, vulnerability, you know, in this movie that was kind of marketed as, again, like a kind of wild teen sex comedy or something, it's got some really serious, sad moments. And, you know, you're the, you know, the man, the, I can't remember, is it Hart Bachner? Is it, yeah. yeah, you have a good memory. Yeah, Hart Bachner. You know, just was such a... He was my neighbor. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, he was funny and... That was, and that was my uh, a movie I did with uh, Eric Stoltz. Right, my first movie I did with Eric Stoltz. He was he was uh, you know I was learning then you know I was trying to trying to do different parts and you know it's really interesting thinking about these things in perspective because my daughters are actresses and Zoe's um, Zoe and Maddie Deutsch and uh, Zoe's doing she's been working for a number of years since she was 16 and now she's 22. And, you know, I, I, I think about her career and where it's going and how she approaches her career. And it it kind of makes me kind of relive the way I did it. And, you know, of course it's a completely different perspective, which she acknowledges because, you know, she has me and I had nobody, you know, I had nobody to, I didn't understand the business. I didn't understand being an actor, I was just a girl trying to, you know, make a living, really. You know, I had no nobody to back me up. When I moved to New York when I was 16, I had nobody to to write the check if I ran out of money. Like, there was nothing, you know. So um, I... You know, I'm 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 interested in her the way she does it, and I'm I'm interested in thinking about, you know, how she. I've had a lot of longevity, but but as soon as I had babies, I was done with my movie career. Like the movie, the studio movies were done with me, and I want to make sure that doesn't happen to her or to 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 Maddie. However, Maddie decides to go, whether she decides to go with the acting or the writing, but. Um, writing is obviously better, but it was a it was shocking to me to like I literally have done one studio movie since I did what would it be the Little Rascals was mm-hmm. my last studio movie. I think so. I don't I understand how that happens to mm-hmm. somebody who makes movies that make money. The Little Rascals, you know, every mm-hmm. movie I'm, most of the movies I'm, big features I made. And uh, it's such a brutal business. And I want to somehow figure out a way to outsmart it for, or hope that Zoe can outsmart it. Well, that's an interesting point. I was actually surprised in preparing for this. I just kind of looked over your filmography. And it's, you know, in a way I was kind of surprised You've been in a lot of movies, but I was still surprised in a way by how few you had been in for how big your career seemed, just because you happened to have been in a few in the 80s that hit 
I mean, I don't know if they were necessarily all huge hits at the time, but they've certainly, I mean, Back to the Future was. But you've been in several movies that just have really permeated the culture. I mean, including, yeah. you know, even even a movie that wasn't popular at the time, like Howard the Duck. You know, now it's got all these fans and, you know, people talk about it. I mean, that was actually the first thing when I, uh, you know, talked to my editor at Talkhouse about doing this podcast. You know, the, the the one movie he brought up, make sure you ask her about Howard the Duck. But, you know, looking over it, it's like Back to the Future, Howard the Duck, some kind of wonderful, uh, you know, Red Dawn is another one that... Hugely popular. And, I mean, people, they've, they've definitely, there's so many movies that die, like mm-hmm. no one cares about. And they still have fan bases and people who, they still have, D- I just did a DVD uh, extra uh-huh. feature. They paid for my hair and makeup and a really good guy to do it uh-huh. for Space Camp. Right. Like they're releasing that in Blu-ray. So yeah. and that was a bomb. Mm-hmm. So and that was made 30 years ago. So obviously somebody likes it because they don't release those things. They mm-hmm. it costs too much money. Mm-hmm. So uh yeah, you're right. And I I it is a mystery to me. You would think somebody would have resurrected me for something. Well know? that's why I mean that's what my and my I'm just kind of curious. Because there's fans, all these right. guys are fans. Like Tuturo right. will be like, Oh my god, I love you. You're yeah, so yeah, great. Yeah. You're like one of the greats. You know, I'm like, give me a job. <laughs> it's really weird. I mean, I know I've worked constantly yeah. on TV and I made that choice, but uh, there is it's bizarre. Mm-hmm. I'm waiting. You know, or maybe I'll just have to direct myself in a big feature. Well, so if you had been, you know, you went through all these years without getting a studio movie, how did uh, Clint Eastwood's J. Edgar come about? Because that kind of just came out of nowhere. Yeah, I really don't know. And I went and auditioned and wore diamonds and they gave me the job. But it was <laughs> weird. Like, But I've been expecting that kind of stuff mm-hmm. to happen all the time. Um, but I guess what happens is there's so few parts in big features now that they, yeah. that they just automatically go to women who have Academy Award nominations. Right. Right. You know, because there's a bunch of those. Yeah. And Melissa Leo's going to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's or, taking all of your parts. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that's just they go through the list of the Academy Award people. Mm-hmm. Because I, I I, have fans. It's it's a mystery to me, really. It is an honestly a strange uh, thing. Not that I. It's not that terrible to me, mm-hmm. but but only when I'm doing one of these interviews about <laughs> my movies that I did 155 right. million years ago, to me, mm-hmm. do I start thinking about it and it kind of like makes me sad that you can't talk about a movie I've done in a while. I mean, I've done a, I've probably done 20 independent movies right. in the, the kind of weird age that we're at where, mm-hmm. where all, only serious kind of interesting movies are made independently and mm-hmm. like kind of disappear into the ethers or like people don't really see them. Yeah. So I feel like I've made a few really interesting ones. I've made a few interesting ones this year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I, I, I feel like uh, they just kind of melt into the <laughs> ethers mm-hmm. in a way, but I still had fun making them. And some people, some people see them and really like them. Mm-hmm. They're not really, most of the ones that I've made are not really genre movies. Right. So. They're harder to click in. I have to say something about your movie that stood out for me. I just watched it again yesterday, and the you know the thing I really like about it is it doesn't have the confined feeling that most independent films nowadays do, my, mine included, uh, because you know mo- now most of the time nowadays you do have such limited time and resources that everybody just kind of makes these movies that take place in one room, and even you know all the horror movies and stuff like that, they all take place in a basement or something. And and I was really impressed with how New York Spectacular Men, with how uh, 
you know, kind of broad it is in terms of the number of locations, the number of scenes, you know, that it feels like a real movie. It feels sort of like a Woody Allen or Nora Ephron movie or something from the eighties. It doesn't, you know, feel, it doesn't feel like a movie where you were straining against your resources, even though I knew, I know you were. And I mean, I, the cinematography in it, uh, I had wasn't familiar with this guy Brian Koss, is that his name mm-hmm. who shot it but I mean the cinematography in it is just fantastic. I mean Thank it's a really you. sort of great and and I really liked that you went for a kind of more formally composed lit like you know I think there's this whole been this whole movement in independent filmmaking and even more so in television this whole idea that you just handhold everything and it mm-hmm. drives me completely nuts because mm-hmm. I feel like it's become such a cliche and you know people think oh if it's handheld it's more real or something like that and and which I've never I've never understood and I also think it's kind of lazy filmmaking because if everything's handheld then it doesn't mean anything like the handheld only means something if it's on, in contrast with something else and anyway the, the point is I think with yours uh, you know your movie has a much more sort of classical style to it that you and the cinematographer brought to it. And I think that that, you know, it kind of made, as an audience member, I sit back and I just kind of relaxed when mm-hmm. I watched it because it was like, okay, like I'm in good hands here, you know, and and, and I can kind of get sucked into it in a way that uh, that I really liked. So anyway, it's kind of a long-winded way of just no, paying you a compliment. That. that I appreciate that. It was a really specific idea because I knew that even though I was making an indie movie, that it was actually daring to shoot it the way I shot it because people aren't used to it anymore. They're like, right. oh, this is conventional. And I wanted it to be conventionally unconventional. Right. I think that, that by shooting it, in a way that makes, like you said, relax, that's conventional, then it's more fun. Mm-hmm. It's funnier to see the other things that are happening and and to see this, a story unfold that is uniquely modern and written by an actual 23-year-old woman, you know, like that's her real perspective on things. That's, that's, that's a modern idea because that just doesn't happen mm-hmm. in a conventional movie. It was always, you know, men writing that stuff or, you know, in, in a great case of... Nora Ephron, but um, yeah, so I wanted it to be conventionally beautiful and and have a take on millennials that was more of like a, a you know, a, like a more, I don't know, classic mm-hmm. look. And I, I just thought it would be more interesting. And I knew it was daring, you know, um, and to shoot it with the anamorphic lenses to make it like wider so yeah. you could kind of catch the comedy widely, you know, to put the put the subjects in the middle of the frame all the time was a very kind of weird choice that I made. And to, to try to balance a lot of the shots, like very balanced. And that was, it was strange. It was also really hard to cut it mm-hmm. that because cut, cutting between close-ups, everything had to match in a way that was really hard. Not like the way you shot the movie, which was Gene, our movie, The Trouble with the Truth. Um, with the two cameras mm-hmm. shooting at the same time was such a great thing. Even, even though you also chose to shoot it very classically. Oh, yeah. You know, um, uh, but the two cameras at the same time was an amazing experience. Like, for an actor, that's the best thing in the world. Yeah. Because you can kind of, like, improv emotionally. You can cry on one take at the same time. You cr- laugh at the next one, and you know that you're not leaving the other actor high and dry. Right. Being like, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. I didn't react to what you just did. Yeah. I can't remember what you just did, so... The making of our movie was super unique, and I I would love to make a movie like that. 
Yeah, I love doing it. Yeah, I mean, I love doing the multiple camera thing. I don't really, you know, partly, honestly, is because I'm lazy and it cuts down on the time. You know, you have to to edit. To, for sure. <laughs> but uh, but also, yeah, I'm I, I agree. I mean, I think it really gives you it frees the actors up so much, and some cinematographers resist it. Uh, you know, because it it compromises their lighting or you know and all that but I always I've I've kind of lost patience with that argument from cinematographers ever since I read an interview with Ridley Scott where he said he shot the battle scenes in Robin Hood with 14 cameras and so I'm kind of like all right if Ridley Scott can make Robin Hood look the way it looked with 14 cameras I don't want to hear somebody bitching to me about using two but yeah that is a weird it's a weird thing and it's a it's incredibly useful Mm -hmm. incredibly useful I I just couldn't I, I had to choose between the anamorphic lenses and the two cameras. So, well, you, something else I want to touch on before we wrap up is the whole idea of acting with special effects. Because you, again, you were, you know, Howard the Duck and the Back to the Future movies. You've been in some kind of, you know, what are now thought of as huge special effects movies. And I guess I, I'm very curious about the whole Howard the Duck experience because we've never really talked about it. But you. I just remember you in passing when you were doing Trouble with the Truth mentioning that, you know, oh, yeah, we were shooting that movie for six months, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, to me seemed, it sounds like absolute hell. I mean, I can't Torture. imagine, you know, being on the same the same movie for six months. And, I mean, I'm curious, was that because of the effects? I mean, was it because of the duck? Or was it because of, like, what? Well, actually, I shot a total of five or five, five movies that took six months. Really? What, All three Back to the Futures took six months each. Wow. Uh, Dennis the Menace took six <laughs> months. No one knows why that happened. And uh, Howard the Duck. Wow. And so, yeah, it was it was a nightmare. Howard the Duck, we shot one scene for three weeks. Wow. The scene, this the scene where it, we're in like the sushi bar, mm-hmm. sushi place. I don't know. And the Dark Overlord takes over and destroys the whole set. Mm-hmm. You know, we were the joke was we got to the. POV of the ketchup. And I was like, no, we can't have the POV of the ketchup. Please, we've done every shot possible. And I had to tell the same uh, little cute little puns right. you know, about a hundred million times. It's impossible. They'll be funny. Um, but yeah, that movie, um, it was, th- th- I think, three weeks for the whole end sequence where we were in this freezing cold, big giant thing but this was you know the dark ages of special effects another movie that actually was really impressive that way was red dawn Mm -hmm. there were no special effects in that movie everything blew up Mm -hmm. everything you know everything happened in real time and that movie took a really long time we had to wait for snow for three weeks we just sat there waiting for snow for three weeks. Uh-huh. I, w- I went back to visit the hotel, and the hotel was like, thank God. We were just opened, and because <laughs> you guys had to sit and wait for three weeks, and mostly everybody just drank in the right. bar, we stayed open. <laughs> um, but, yeah, the special effects in Howard the Duck were really, really difficult, and they were really difficult to act with because the duck always broke. So that my my nickname was Dawn because they would wait to do my close-up till dawn. <laughs> and I was like, I'm the leading lady. I'm supposed to look pretty. But they would always worry about the duck and his mouth moving. And every time a, a plane went over or like someone opened a car door or something, it would go, face would go crazy in the middle of a, of a take. And they had a, a I think it was an eight-year-old boy or t- I can't remember uh-huh. inside that suit so that was also really difficult because it would take him an hour 45 minutes to get into the suit mm-hmm. we could only keep him there for like 
an hour. Yeah. It was very uncomfortable and awful for this poor little guy. And um, then take him out, you know. So it was like a nightmare, you know, honestly. But it was fun acting, you know, with with uh, with Tim Robbins, uh-huh. who never, <laughs> never uh, owns up to this movie. But yeah. it was it was he was really fun to to work with. Uh, well, when you, you know, when you came on to that movie, I mean, did you, how was it presented to you? Did you think you were getting into something that was just going to be a huge phenomenon? Cause it was spruced by George Lucas, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, you're coming onto this, you know, big George Lucas comic book movie. I mean, did you, what were your expectations for it before you started? It, it was massive, yeah. you know, and then they were, I was coming off of Back to the Future, so I was a big star, so I was on their short list, but I remember my audition, and I remember looking for all the clothes and stuff, trying to look like Madonna, mm-hmm. trying to buy them, buy, you know, the rock star stuff yeah. to wear and uh, sing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was cool. I was going to get to be a rock star and sing, although they, like, held it out till the end, like, we might redo your voice. It was so obnoxious. Um but yeah, it, it was, uh, and also I never got a day off. Mm-hmm. I was always working and rehearsing and learning how to play the guitar and recording. And it, w- it was really, really hard shoot. Um, yeah, everyone thought it was going to be a big hit, even till the end, because they were looking for the voice of Howard and they were auditioning everybody. You know, they could have had Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. They could have had Jay Leno. Mm-hmm. And that's what I kept saying, because I could tell. The comedy, mm-hmm. it was very hard to do that comedy with the puppeteer yeah. going, yes, Beverly, mm-hmm. it is great to see you. You know, I would be like, <laughs> you're killing the comedy. It's like a nightmare. I was like, Shh, recut the movie, let Jay Leno go, let Robin <laughs> right. Williams go. Right. And just stay on my reaction or the back of the duck or whatever, you know, just let it go. Mm-hmm. And... We kn- we all knew that the technical problems of making the duck were, were going to ruin the movie because it just was really hard. The comedy was hard to do, you know. So so then later when Bob Zemeckis did Who Framed Roger Rabbit, I had a really long conversation with him about that. And mm-hmm. I think I helped inspire him to get an actor on the set for mm-hmm. the whole time because mm-hmm. a really great, funny actor because you the, we can't hold up balls, you know. Like yeah. you, comedy is a, a souffle. You have to have life mm-hmm. in it. And that's why I'm proud of that performance. I, like, carry that duck up my back, you know, like dragged him up a hill, yeah. you know, because in terms of the comedy and making him seem real and making it seem like it was a fun adventure. Mm-hmm. It was really hard. Well, and I would imagine when the movie came out and was not successful that it was probably fairly crushing at the time. And yet... In a way, if I'm if I have the story right, uh, it the Howard the Duck's failure was probably the best thing that ever happened to you personally because it made you do some kind of wonderful mm-hmm. where you met your husband Howard yeah. Deutsch. Uh, is that true? I mean, because I, I I think I'd heard that you originally turned down some kind of wonderful because and then when Howard the Duck flopped, you thought, oh shit, maybe I better do this movie. Yeah, it was brutal. Yeah, yeah, it was brutal, and uh, yeah, I did. I turned it down and then I took it back because I was like, I better get a job because it was, I was like shivering in my house. It was so mean. The things that people were saying were so mean. You know, no one sets out to make a bad movie. Right. Like, you don't have to be so brutal when you're talking about something. I mean, you know, and I have to say that to myself. I shouldn't Mm -hmm. say that to myself all the time. 
but it was um it was i i think i knew that that was kind of the end of something for me like my uh ability to be a real you know to work with really good people i think might have really died with that <laughs> movie um you know now i look back on it maybe that's why you know I don't like to say that, but it's probably true. And so it was a really bad moment for me. Not that I was surprised. You get a sinking feeling oftentimes when you go to the first table read and you're like, what? Mm -hmm. That's not going to work. And I definitely had a sinking feeling, you know, when I saw how the duck was and how it was so hard to make the comedy work, you know. But, you know, a lot of people really love the movie and I really love those fans and, you know, I I am not embarrassed of my performance. I think I did a I did my job well, and uh, made a duck look kind of sexy and made people really <laughs> uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, but I always appreciated things that were slightly off, and mm -hmm. I brought that to my movie, to my movie, The Year of Spectacular Men. I have a I have a very particular, strange um, sense of humor um, uh, and humanity, and I I think that that's a gift that I can bring to my directing that I also, that's why I loved Back to the Future. It was mm -hmm. such a twisted, bizarre story. Um, and I've always had that. It's funny. I was talking, I was talking with Joe Dante and he was telling me that, you know, he was around at the time Back to the Future was being made. You know, I guess he was friends with Spielberg and Zemeckis and all that kind of thing. And he was saying, you know, they were all very, very nervous about that movie before it came out. You know, the studio was very nervous about, you know, the, the whole that it's, you know, essentially comedy about, a wholesome family comedy about incest, you yes. know. And it's funny, and it's kind of, I think people almost forget, people don't oh, pay totally attention forget. to how weird that movie, yeah. and Zemeckis is kind of the master of that. I mean, his movies, he's kind of the master of combining things in his movies in a way where the true dark, weird heart of them, because he's got a very dark sense of humor, mm -hmm. uh, you know, him and, and Gail, and I feel like they really figured out how to package their sort of dark, twisted sensibility in a, you know, mainstream-friendly package. Uh, it is interesting. What I mean, you know, just the, the times we live in right now, like, what people focus on is so bizarre. Like, you know, so you can go like over here and mm -hmm. do that, you know, like it's very, it's, it's really interesting to me. And, and yeah, the way people see that character is like, you were so innocent. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> no, she was demented, yeah. you know, N not just demented in the fact that she wanted to um, have sex with her son, but just demented in her, like the way she saw the world. She was a crazy character and a great character. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I often say I've had, three or four great parts, one of them being your movie, The Trouble with the Truth and Back to the Future. And then I did Sally Bowles on Broadway. And they all have these, they, you think that they're one thing and then they're, not, they're another thing, which is great. You know, mm -hmm. there's so few complex female roles. And definitely Lorraine McFly is like the craziest character. Well, it's funny. I really love uh, Some Kind of Wonderful. It's actually one of my, another one of my favorite movies of yours. But did you turn that down initially because that, part wasn't as complex initially. I mean, because I feel like you, I feel like she is a sort of more complex character than you normally would get in that type, in that mm -hmm. type of movie. But was that something, was that always there from the beginning or was that something that you and Howie brought to it more? Um, yeah, it was a completely different script when I turned it down the first time. 
and that's that's a part of the story that's kind of interesting. But um, and then how we quit the movie, and then do you remember the director that took was over? did did Martha Coolidge or Martha somebody? Coolidge, I'm trying yeah. to think. I feel like yeah. somebody like that yeah, was involved Coolidge. with it at some point. And she redeveloped the script and made it darker. Mm-hmm. And then she was let go. And then Howie came back. Mm-hmm. So actually, we probably owe her a debt of mm-hmm. you know, gratitude <laughs> for that. And I've never, I just thought of that. I was like, I should say that to her. Um, but yeah, the character was, the reason I turned it down was that it was obviously the second yeah. lead. The other girl was the better part. And um, Mary Stuart Masterson's part was a better part, certainly on the on the page. It doesn't seem quite so much on the screen, but on the page, it was a much better part. And that would have been the part I really wanted to do. You know, I was trying to build my career in a certain way, so I wasn't really in the mood to take that part. So anyway, but I am glad because I met my husband, Howie, and now we're both directors and, you know, we get to compare notes and it's <laughs> fun. Thanks for sitting down with me and doing this, Leah. It's been great. Thank you. It's fun to talk to you with mics. <laughs> <laughs> and it's always fun to talk to you, Ali Einhorn, with mics or with no mics. Nick Dawson, you as well. Thank you to our listeners. And thank you to Jim and Leah for today's conversation. Absolutely. And if you're in LA this Friday, you're a spectacular man, LA Film Festival, be there. Thank you so much to our listeners who take the time to head to iTunes and Stitcher and rate us there. If you enjoy the podcast, the more you rate us, the more other people get to hear it. And we get to do more episodes like this, recorded by Susan Vallett. Mixed and co-produced by Mark Yoshizumi. The man himself. Tomorrow on the podcast, Teenage Fan Club's Norman Blake in conversation with Riley Walker. I will be listening to that one for sure. Till then, I'm Nick Dawson. I'm Elia Einhorn. Thanks for listening. 